0: had gone to Hong Kong with an enormous batch of documents that he had taken from the NSA that he believed revealed very grave illegalities and violations of the Constitution and wanted to work with me in order to reveal them and report them and wanted me to get on a plane to fly to Hong Kong. And I said, well, before you do, I need you to prove to me that there's validity, that there's something genuine about what you're saying. And he said, all right, I'll share with you a tiny portion of the documents I have. He sent me 20 top secret documents from the most secret of agency of the world's most powerful government, the NSA, the first time there had been a leak of any kind from the NSA, and needless to say, I called my editors of The Guardian that night and said, I need to get on the plane and fly immediately to Hong Kong, which I did within 36 hours and spent 12 or 13 days with him there in Hong Kong, which is when we started the reporting that revealed NSA spying to the world. Hi, I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. In the opening clip, we heard from journalist Glenn Greenwald, who in 2013, was contacted by former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden. Snowden ultimately provided Greenwald and other journalists from The Guardian with access to classified documents from the NSA, which, according to Britannica, revealed, quote, a court order that compelled telecommunications company Verizon to turn over metadata, such as numbers dialed and duration of calls, for millions of its subscribers, and the existence of PRISM a data mining program that reportedly gave the NSA, the FBI, and the Government Communications Headquarters, Britain's NSA equivalent, direct access to the servers of such Internet giants as Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple. End quote. This event is just one in a long list of American whistleblowing, which has collectively made secret information public, for better or for worse. Snowden joined a long list of other notable whistleblowers, a list that includes Peter Buxton, who publicly uncovered the CDC's Tuskegee syphilis study, Frank Serpico, who was the first police officer in history to openly testify about corruption in the New York Police Department, and W. Mark Felt, or Deep Throat, who broke the Watergate scandal in 1972. In fact, as we'll learn in this episode, whistleblowers have played a critical role throughout nearly the entirety of American history, and they have been perceived as both heroes and as villains. And whistleblowing continues today. In fact, just two weeks ago, the National Whistleblower Center sent letters to federal agency heads urging them to recognize July 30th as National Whistleblower Appreciation Day, marking the anniversary of the passing of the first U.S. whistleblower law by Congress in 1778. On the other side of the break, we'll delve into a few notable examples of American whistleblowing and explore the lasting legacy and impact of each. Don't go anywhere.
3: Thanks for joining us today for our conversation on whistleblowers in the United States. As Zach mentioned in his introduction in 2013, Edward Snowden, a former computer intelligence consultant working as a subcontractor at the National Security Agency, leaked thousands of highly classified documents detailing in part mass surveillance programs of the federal government that were monitoring phone calls and intercepting electronic communications of US and foreign citizens alike. Snowden shared these materials with journalists Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras in June of 2013 and in collaboration with their colleagues Barton Gelman and Ewan McCaskill, wrote articles first reporting the story in The Guardian as well as The Washington Post. While public opinion of whether Snowden's deeds as a whistleblower were noble or treasonous continued to evolve over time, the U.S. government continues to view him as a traitor who violated the Espionage Act and significantly damaged U.S. intelligence capabilities, with both Presidents Obama and Trump declining to pardon his actions during their lame duck periods in office. In 2020, seven years after Snowden blew the whistle, The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals found the surveillance programs to be unlawful, ruling that warrantless telephone surveillance violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and may have well been unconstitutional. For our next clip, we searched C-SPAN's video library and found a program we covered in 2019 that featured Edward Snowden talking about his role as a whistleblower. He appeared on the ACLU's At Liberty podcast, hosted by ACLU Executive Director Anthony Romero. So let's listen to a portion of that program in which Snowden offers his perspective. And what I set out to do was not
2: uh, burn down the NSA. I wasn't trying to to break the government. I wasn't trying to tell people how to live. I wasn't trying to tell people how to change the laws. What I was saying was that the purported values of the government, what the government says that we're doing um, and tells the public, even under oath in front of Congress, uh, was in fact not the truth. It was a lie. And when that happens, um, blowing the whistle, uh, I don't think should be, seen as a revolutionary act. It is not a radical act. It's rather a conventional act of return. Um, it is saying to the government, and it is saying to our public, that somewhere along this path, uh, we have lost our way. Right. I can't change it. You can't change it. But together, maybe we can change it. Right. But that's not a decision for the whistleblower. All the whistleblower does um is set, say uh, to you what you were not allowed to know right. but must know if we're to remain a democracy
3: for additional context living in exile following the meetings with the journalists from the Guardian and the Washington Post in August of 2013 Edward Snowden was granted temporary residence in Russia over the years he sought asylum in more than 25 countries around the world but has been denied in each case so Snowden ultimately settled in Russia, where he resides today, and in 2022, he was granted Russian citizenship. It goes without saying that this complex case continues to impact the ways in which we now think about data privacy, surveillance, and government oversight.
1: As always, when we engage in the research process for a podcast, we discover fascinating facts about the topics. And for this episode, I was surprised when I learned about an early whistleblowing case in the United States that dates back to the Revolutionary War. In 1777, a group of 10 naval officers reported the abuse of British POWs by Navy Commodore Hopkins to the Continental Congress. A libel suit ensued, and two of the informants, Samuel Shaw and Richard Marvin, were imprisoned. They sought help from the Continental Congress, and as a result, the first whistleblower law was passed on July 30, 1778, which we found in the Library of Congress. "...resolved that it is the duty of all persons in the service of the United States, as well as all other the inhabitants thereof, to give the earliest information to Congress or other proper authority of any misconduct, frauds, or misdemeanors committed by any officers or persons in the service of these states, which may come to their knowledge." Since that time, people have come forward to present information they feel the public should be made aware of. One familiar case is the Pentagon Papers. For background on this case, we went to the nixonlibrary.gov website and found that it was in 1967 when Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara initiated a study of the United States involvement in Southeast Asia from 1945 to 1967. The group was composed of military personnel, scholars, and other federal employees. One of the analysts who served on this committee was Daniel Ellsberg. Frustrated with the findings and continued policies, Ellsberg decided to share documents from the study, and the New York Times began to publish them in June 1971. Let's listen to a clip from a C-SPAN program that aired a portion of the film titled, quote, The Most Dangerous Man in America, that featured Ellsberg and his story.
4: It was the evening of October 1st, 1969, when I first smuggled several hundred pages of top-secret documents out of my safe at the RAM Corporation. Good morning, sir. The study contained 47 volumes, 7,000 pages. My plan was to xerox the study and reveal the secret history of the Vietnam War to the American people. The
5: FBI was trying to find out who gave the New York Times a copy of the Pentagon's secret study. Pow, like a like a thunderclap, you get the New York Times publishing the Pentagon papers and the country is panicking. This is
4: an attack on the whole integrity of government. If whole file cabinets can be stolen and then made available to the press. You can't have orderly government anymore.
0: I mean, it was just staggering. The raw, top secret, eyes-only documents.
1: The study ultimately revealed that the public had been misled about the extent of the United States involvement in Vietnam that spanned over several presidential administrations, from Truman to Eisenhower and Kennedy to Johnson, and it was completed just days before President Nixon was inaugurated. In this next clip, we'll hear from Ellsberg, quote, the most dangerous man in America, as he talked about the Nixon administration's reaction to his actions.
4: Well, most people don't know, actually, why, uh, why Kissinger would have called me that. When I put out the documents, they were mainly of the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times, which mm-hmm. President Nixon then tried to uh, stop by the first injunctions in our history. It really, um, he was doing that not because he didn't like that information out. That was a leak that he actually liked the content of it out. He was afraid, however, with good reason, that I had information on his own, nuclear threats and his own threats of escalation which he had yet to carry out and that uh, I by revealing them I would block him from doing that because the public might not think it was a good idea to start nuclear war over South Vietnam so uh, he had to shut me up I was dangerous to him not because of the Pentagon Papers in fact but because I would copied other documents that related directly to him he didn't know what they were entirely and in order to stop me he hired people to uh, blackmail me by getting information from my former psychiatrist's office, and in another case, to incapacitate me totally. And these were crimes that had to be covered up.
6: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: The Pentagon Papers' example of whistleblowing is a great case study of the major themes we've alluded to throughout this episode already, including the motivation of the whistleblower, the intended effect of the leak, and the reactions from both supporters and opponents of the whistleblower. But what about the legal effects of whistleblowing? In the aftermath of the Pentagon Papers leak, the Nixon administration attempted to prevent the New York Times and Washington Post from publishing the materials that Ellsberg provided regarding the history of United States activities in Vietnam. According to OEA.org, the president argued that prior restraint, or maintaining the government's ability to review the content of printed materials and prevent their publication, was necessary to protect national security. However, in a 6-3 to three decision, the Supreme Court ruled for the New York Times, allowing the documents to be published. But the impact of Ellsberg's whistleblowing did not stop with the Vietnam War, nor with the 1971 Pentagon Papers case. New York Times co-counsel Floyd Abrams explains.
7: It has certainly led uh, to more transparency. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we wouldn't have a Freedom of Information Act, uh, but for all of what we've been uh, talking about. Um, Has it been cited in other cases? Yes, and indeed in one case, the government for a time was winning. That was under President Carter, in which the Progressive Magazine published an article titled, How to Build an H-Bomb. And the government went to court under President Carter. The U.S. District Court granted a prior restraint saying the Pentagon Papers case says it's a very heavy burden. Absolutely. And the government has met it in this case. What happened then was that it was determined that the supposed secrets discussed and revealed in the progressive case were already known in the literature. Uh, and the government dropped the case uh, and it was over. Uh, uh, but uh, but the, the the fact that the case is a general barrier to the issuance of prior restraints even in the national security area that doesn't mean that it's absolute
0: the first amendment encyclopedia describes that in 1979 the u.s government invoked the atomic energy act of 1954 to prevent the publication in the progressive magazine of an article entitled the h-bomb secret to know how is to ask why In the clip, Abrams explained how the 1971 Pentagon Papers case influenced the Supreme Court's ruling in the 1979 United States v. The Progressive Case, stating that the government's ability to invoke prior restraint is not absolute, even when it concerns matters of national security.
3: Well, as you indicated, Zach, the blurred lines between informing the public about issues that may impact them and securing information for the sake of protecting national security... It can be muddy and complicated, particularly when it comes to the law. So what measures have been put in place to protect whistleblowers and offer guidelines and parameters for the process, as well as for determining what is permissible? Well, earlier in this episode, Pam mentioned the whistleblower law that was passed by the Continental Congress in July of 1778. But over time, additional measures and laws have added to protections for those who blow the whistle. According to the U.S. Department of the Interior, Congress passed the Whistleblower Protection Act of 1989 to, quote, strengthen and improve protections for the rights of federal employees and to prevent reprisals, end quote. This gained support from the executive branch of the federal government while George Herbert Walker Bush was president. So let's listen to this clip of President Bush from when he signed the bill into law in 1989. Well, today I am pleased to sign S-20,
5: the Whistleblower Protection Act of 1989, We used to think of a whistleblower as some guy in a funny hat running around on a field with a black and white shirt on, always throwing down the flag, but that might well be an apt comparison for the business at hand because whistleblowing is, after all, the one who cries foul to waste, to fraud, and to abuse, and in short, a true whistleblower is a public servant of the highest order. And I share the determination of the Congress that we do everything possible to ensure that these dedicated men and women should not be fired or rebuked or suffer financially for their honesty and good judgment. This bill will go a long way toward this goal by strengthening the protections and procedural rights available to those federal employees who report misdeeds and mismanagement. Toward this end, the bill I am signing today is a significant improvement over legislation enacted by the Congress last year. Indeed, the fact that the legislative and executive work together to eliminate major constitutional flaws in this bill is indeed a reflection of our joint commitment to good government.
3: Since then, protections for whistleblowers continue to evolve, The National Archives' website states that the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act of 2012 was signed into law by President Obama in November of 2012, which, quote, strengthens the protections for federal employees who disclose evidence of waste, fraud, or abuse, end quote.
1: From the sharing of information during the Revolutionary War to the copying of documents in the Pentagon Papers to the gathering of information through technology in the Snowden case— whistleblowing has become more complex of an issue as new platforms and methods of storing and sharing information emerge. And not only is this occurring with issues related to national security, it is happening in the private sector as well. Social media platforms have been the source of inquiry and debate about how they gather data from users and how they use that information for users of all ages. In September 2021, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen testified at a Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection hearing on the business practices and decisions of the social media company and how to protect children online with privacy regulations. Here is a portion of her remarks from that hearing.
6: During my time at Facebook, first working as the lead product manager for civic misinformation and later on counterespionage, I saw Facebook repeatedly encounter conflicts between its own profits and our safety. Facebook consistently resolved these conflicts in favor of its own profits. The result has been more division, more harm, more lies, more threats, and more combat. In some cases, this this dangerous online talk has led to actual violence that harms and even kills people. This is not simply a matter of certain social media users being angry or unstable, or about one side being radicalized against the other. It is about Facebook choosing to grow at all costs, becoming an almost trillion-dollar company by buying its profits with our safety. During my time at Facebook, I came to realize a devastating truth. Almost no one outside of Facebook knows what happens inside of Facebook. The company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the U.S. government, and from governments around the world. The documents I have provided to Congress prove that Facebook has repeatedly misled the public about what its own research reveals about the safety of children, the efficacy of its artificial intelligence systems, and its role in spreading divisive and extreme messages.
1: There was a lot to unpack from her testimony, from how they use algorithms and data collection, the authenticity of information that is shared, to privacy and protection, particularly for young people, and at what cost. Her answers lead to more questions, not only about these concerns, but the impact of these actions both on the future of whistleblowers, the laws that apply to these cases, and how companies will be affected. You know, the three of us talk about this, and looking through a teacher's lens, you could have students search for whistleblowers and choose one to research. They can provide background information on the case, explain the relationship to the First Amendment, and offer their own opinions on the issue.
0: And as we progress toward the 245th anniversary of the first American whistleblowing law later this year, we hope that this episode provided some useful information, or at least a starting point, to help equip you and your students to better understand the complicated history and varied impacts of whistleblowing.
3: As always, you'll find all of the resources that we highlighted in this episode and more on our featured resources page at www.cspan.org slash classroom. And if you'd ever like to connect with our team to learn more about what we have to offer for teachers and students, please email us anytime at educate at c-span.org.
1: That's it for this week. Please remember to like and follow our podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Until then, thank you for joining us.